It is a privilege to be here and a blessing to hear the gospel, a blessing to share in communion with you all, to act out that reminder of the gospel. And as Scott just shared, this is the most valuable uh, news that there is. And it's my conviction that we would find this gospel, this story of salvation uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we would find that gospel sweeter and stronger, more confidence-inspiring, the more that we have a high view of the supremacy of Christ. So I'd like to turn with you to a passage that talks about that very idea. Could you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and starting at verse 15. We're just going to read five verses in this glorious chapter. Starting at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth Or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The challenge with speaking on a text like this is really that, in some ways, it would be better for me just to sit down now. Um, But I would like to spend the remainder of the time this morning, giving you three reasons why that main idea of that passage, the supremacy of Christ, is good news. So let me give you three reasons. First, the identity of Christ. Second, the authority of Christ. And third, it's less to do with his character, but more to do with his work, the Calvary of Christ. First, the identity of Christ. The supremacy of Christ is good news because of who he is. If you have another look at verse 15, that word firstborn, just like the word son, tells us something about Jesus' relationship to God. And thinking about the context, that word son and that word firstborn have profound implications for people living in a patriarchal culture, just like the Greeks or like the Jews in the first century. Remember in the parable of the prodigal son, it's really the parable of two sons, the one runs away and the the older son stays with the father. 
and, and then complains. And the, the father says to the older son, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Not one day will be yours, but is yours, present tense. And Jesus uses that same language in Matthew 11 when he's, de- he's describing his relationship to God as he prays. He says, all things have been given to me by the Father. And nobody knows the Son except, uh, nobody knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals him. The firstborn inherits everything. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that the reason that the Jews wanted to uh, kill Jesus in John chapter 5 was that he was calling God his Father, thereby making himself not lesser than, but actually equal with God, of the same essence, of the same substance. No one has seen God at any time, but in the person of Jesus, in the Son, we see uh, the one who possesses all things that are the Father's. And in the Son's life and person are revealed God's character. We've been thinking in recent weeks about kings and queens quite a lot. And in Australia, that always involves a discussion of whether or not it's even a good thing to be part of the monarchy. And... Culturally, we do have that deep distrust of authority, don't we? In Australia, we think that we're an egalitarian society. We like to say that we are anyway. And one of the things I've picked up on in the discussion of the Queen in the wake of her death and in the, the coronation of King Charles is people's view of both the Queen and the new King are really affected by their opinion of the individual who inhabits that role. When we consider the supremacy of Christ over all things, we have a confidence that isn't necessarily there in human kings. We have a confidence, we have a joy that the substance and character of this king is the substance and character of God himself. There are other offices, there are other roles that Christ has, but we are very much focusing on the, his role as king this, uh, as we look at this passage. And that leads us to consider our reason number two, that the supremacy of Christ is good news for us. So reason number two is the authority of Christ. Have another look at verse 17 and 18. He is before all things... And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy of Christ is based on his eternal nature, on his being one with the Father, one in essence from the beginning. Remember what Jesus tells the Jews in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And this chapter in Colossians confirms that breathtaking truth of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is not God in some vague, generic sense, but in a personal, intimate, specific relationship to the unique covenant-keeping God of Israel. Now, it almost sounds in this chapter of Colossians, this is one of the things I picked up as I was reading this passage, 
It's, it's a bit surprising. It almost sounds like Paul's about to start writing the first chapter of Revelation. Remember where John says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? Um, and certainly the, the structure of the passage has that, those two halves throughout in all those different clauses, the, uh, the visible, invisible, things on heaven, things on earth. Um, in verse 18 it says... He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, he's the beginning, but we kind of expect him to say he's the beginning and the end. So that's surprising to me, and it raises that word firstborn again. We would expect him to say the beginning and the end, and he'd be correct, but instead he says the beginning and the firstborn. I don't know if anyone remembers the, um, the book The Last Battle, the last in the series of the books, the Narnia books written by C.S. Lewis. And this idea of firstborn from the dead raises that um, for me. At the very end, they're fighting. The characters, the friends of Narnia, are vastly outnumbered. They're fighting a battle to save the entire world of Narnia against its enemies. And as the battle's sort of turned against them, a, a couple of them end up in this stable, which again is significant if you think about um, the birth of Christ and so on. Uh, but they go through the door of this stable and they, they realise that they've actually passed through death and they've come into this new creation. And they start meeting all these characters from the previous books who've come back to life. And Tumnus, who's the fawn who meets Lucy in the, very in, uh, the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, he describes the nature of this new creation and he says that it's like an onion with the layers and as you go further in and further up, each, each layer is larger than the next. It's a beautiful image of uh, the resurrection because we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first act of the new creation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our hope. In Romans 8.29, Paul says something similar, but he elaborates. He describes Jesus Christ as the firstborn from the dead, but he, he adds this phrase, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And that is that uh, if he's the firstborn, there will be others. So our hope of new life in Christ, our hope uh, of a resurrection one day, is, is based on this idea of Jesus Christ as the firstborn from among the dead. The supremacy of Christ over all things is good news then because he is risen. Now there were a select few in the Bible who were raised from the dead historically before Jesus, but none of them has ever risen to the right hand of the Father, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules. And Paul says elsewhere that the resurrection is the, is the key to it all. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. What the resurrection does for us then, it demonstrates the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that's our third and final reason from this passage today at least, that the supremacy of Christ is good news for us. So this third reason has to do with the nature of his conquest. Jesus' kingly mission had as its end point on earth not the 
not the palace of Herod, but the cross of Calvary. We've already mentioned kings today, and we've been struck by Jesus' unique authority, and anyone who heard him speak in his earthly ministry could not deny his authority. And again, in our culture, I think we need to distinguish between authority and power, because we're a very anti-authoritarian culture. And maybe that's because we've seen abuses of power in the past. But that's not what we see with Christ. Imagine a really powerful dictator with a strong army who invades a weaker neighbouring country. What shocks us and what we react to is not um, his lack of power. We recognise, yeah, of course he has the power to do that. What we question and what shocks us is whether that's a legitimate use of power. We question his authority to do that. As we've seen in Jesus Christ, we're not dealing with a tyrant. We're not dealing with somebody for whom might is right. We're dealing with supremacy that's different from every earthly king. Look at verse 19 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, to bring back into relationship, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christ does have the supremacy, the preeminence over all things. He does reign right now at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again, not as uh, a lowly uh, prophet, but as a conquering king. Yet Jesus' supremacy consists in his being made a curse for us by willingly, obediently laying down his life as the spotless lamb of God. The supremacy of Christ, though it's expressed in kingly terms, is not the same kind of supremacy as any other political leader. In Philippians 2 verse 9, we read that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That is the name Christ, the king, the the anointed one. Jesus' willing submission, his humble obedience, his self-sacrifice is the basis of his supremacy, the basis of his exaltation over all things. The supremacy of Christ is a good thing because it is the glorious outcome of our reconciliation with God. In Christ, there is no supremacy apart from grace, no lion that is not also the lamb. The Calvary of Christ means that his supremacy is good news for us because we can be reconciled with him. We no longer need to recoil from him. Let me close with a brief illustration. Um, This it comes from the life of T.S. Eliot who is a famous poet from the last hundred years. Um, Born in America, lived much of his life in England He was widely considered by, even in his own lifetime, as the most important poet living uh, in the 20th century. He 
was a man of great accomplishments. He studied ancient languages. He studied philosophy. He was raised a Unitarian, and he held to the Unitarian faith, if you want to call it that, which essentially means that he um, denies the Trinity and he denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. Among his friends were some of the most famous atheists of the last hundred years, um, the mathematician Bertrand Russell, the novelist Virginia Woolf and others. And he lived his life in that world until approaching 40 one day when he was on holiday in Rome. He caused a scandal among his atheist friends when he publicly kneeled in front of the Pieta. The Pieta is a sculpture you'd recognize it if you saw it, a sculpture of um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the crucified body of, of Christ down from the cross. And Eliot embarrassed them beyond belief by kneeling publicly as this kind of profound symbolic act in front of this sculpture of Jesus. You see, at that point... In his life, Eliot had come to a realisation. Or rather, he'd, he'd come to a person. And art and achievement weren't it. Human philosophy wasn't it. And the idea of an impersonal God wasn't it. His whole life, he said later, he'd been searching for something that the ancient Greeks called the still point of the turning world. The ancient Greek philosophers are also kind of scientists. They're always interested in what's at the centre. What's the nature of reality at the very centre? And what Eliot realised halfway through his life was that the centre of the universe, the still point of the turning world, was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then ask the music team to, to come up to lead us in our final song. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. You are our King. We want to know you as supreme in all things. We want to enthrone you as supreme in our lives. If there is any aspect of our lives that is not under your Lordship, Lord, I, I ask that we would repent. I ask that you would have the grace to reconcile us as you have through the blood of your Son, Jesus, shed on the cross. We thank you for the glorious reality that he does reign right now. And we ask for the, the faith to be able to love him so that when he does return, we will recognize him and we will thrill to his appearing rather than recoiling from him in terror. Lord, we want to continue praising you now. And we ask that in all things... You would be supreme. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.